No way. The nope. bastards. Nope. Because of the way she looked. The bastards. Welcome to Electric Enthusiasm, the podcast where we celebrate unironic enthusiasm. A tisket! A tasket! I've <laughs> lost my yellow basket! I'm Katie Kobold. <laughs> and I am Alexander Kyoth, and thanks to Ella Fitzgerald, I know exactly what to do if love comes. <laughs> <laughs> I love we did both the song references. That's so exactly. cute. Those are the two Ella songs I know. So uh, we're going to oh. get back to that. Oh, you're going to have an education, sir. Excellent. Before we get to the education, how does this work, Alex? Well, in each episode of the podcast, one of us presents a topic that they love, but that the other host knows little to nothing about and then tries their damn best to spread their enthusiasm to the other host and to you, the listener. Sometimes that's really fun. We have guests on who are super excited about something that we know nearly nothing about. We also have the moment of meta, where we nerd out about enthusiasm itself and talk about why it matters and how you can live a more enthusiastic life. Because we honestly think the world needs more enthusiasm and you should share yours with us on our website, electricenthusiasm.com or our Instagram, at electricenthusiasm. Tell us what you're excited about these days. Uh, you could even plain old send us an email at hello at electricenthusiasm.com. <laughs> so Katie, what are we talking about today? We're talking about one of my favorite singers of all time, Miss Ella Fitzgerald. Oh yeah. So you know two songs by her only? Which Those is... are, if you put a gun to my head and said, mention three Ella Fitzgerald songs or you're dead, I'd be dead. <laughs> oh dear, dude. But I do love those two songs. And okay. Comes Love, the one that I referenced in my intro, is a beautiful song. It's one of my favorite songs to dance to. It's a little, it's very low key, very chill, very mellow. But I really love it and I love the lyrics. Mm-hmm. The song is all about these disasters that can strike you in life and you can handle all of those. Comes a fire, you know just what to do, blow a tire, you can buy another shoe, another tire, but comes love, you're helpless. And then my favorite verse is, comes a nightmare, you can always stay awake, comes depression, you can get another break. And I was like, that's very forward, that's very positive of, of, you know, mental illness. And then I realized it's not mental depression, it's it's financial depression, it's the great depression, yes. But still, uh, great song, great lyrics, her voice is phenomenal, I love this song so much. Anyways, Anyways. We're going to talk about Ella. I've spoken about Ella publicly on multiple platforms multiple times. So I was one of the guest DJs for the DJ Battles for Swing Step, mm-hmm. and I repped Ella. So I had a lot of Ella love there, but that wasn't recorded. And I've also talked about her on my YouTube channel, um, specifically looking at the incident where she got arrested in Texas. So if you want to learn more about Ella's resilience and also her like zero fucks given vibes... <laughs> I recommend go check that video. I'll make sure the link is in the show notes. That That is kind of our thing here, right? Is people who just do not give a fuck, right? As a, I mean, people who will do whatever, whenever, because that's what they want to do. On that note, I need to pull up this quote. I wasn't necessarily going to mention this quote, but now that we've said that, <laughs> one of her very good friends, June Norton, said this. I'm going to chuck it in the script for you. So this is what June Norton, a longtime friend of hers, said about Ella. Uh-huh. So Ella, she never cried in her beer about circumstances because it wasn't going to make things different. It wasn't going to change what was. And so best she could do was pick up from there and go on. Yes, resilience. Love it. So what I wanted to do today was a little bit like what I did with Swing Step. Take you through Ella's life Mm -hmm. through music, through her songs, through what she wrote and what she was part of. 
and introduces some key characters along the way. Yes, sounds like a great plan, but we do like to start with the facts first around here, Katie. So what exactly should a person know about the great Ella Fitzgerald? So Ella was born in April 1917. She had a very rough childhood. Her father was never part of her life. Her mom remarried. She was born out in Yonkers, but she moved to New York. And then her mother passed. Uh, so after that happened, she was kind of just stuck with her stepdad, who she did not get on with. She never spoke publicly about it, but friends of hers and like peers of hers suspected abuse, suspected <sighs> poor treatment. And so she just ran away. She was living in Harlem at the time on the streets. She was probably running numbers. Do you know what playing the numbers is? Kind of like a lottery, underground lottery kind yes. of thing, right? It was an underground lottery specifically run by African-American communities. And it was a way for African-American women in particular to earn a living. Because you could do it from your kitchen. And it was illegal, very illegal. <laughs> but it was a very easy way to earn some money. So it was commonly done by women. And it was commonly done within the African-American community. If you wanted to place your numbers, you needed somebody to run that number from whoever you are to the woman in her kitchen. Mm -hmm. So... Ella was probably doing that to earn money. She probably didn't know it was illegal, but she was doing it. At 15, she got caught and arrested for truancy, for running the numbers. It's unsure why she was arrested. She could have been arrested because she was a little black girl on the streets. Yeah. Instead of being taken to jail, she's taken to a reformatory where they would beat the girls. It was not a fun place to be. And so she escaped. And this is where she starts singing and dancing. She's been, always been a bit of tomboy, but she loves dancing. She loves moving. And so at the age of 17, November 21st, 1934, she enters the amateur night at the Apollo Theater. She was originally planning on doing like a singing and dancing act. However, there was this pair, the Edward sisters, who went on and they closed the first act. And they had the house screaming. They were so talented. These dances were. And Ella took one look at them and she was like, maybe I just sing. Maybe I sing. I think singing. When you watch her acts going forward, she does do some dancing in a lot of her acts. Like she was known with Duke Ellington to like swing out on the floor. Wow. But in this moment, she's like. <laughs> so I'll put a link to this documentary in the doobly-doo. But there's this amazing quote from the great Norma Miller, who was a Savoy dancer at the time, who was in the audience when Ella stepped down on stage. She talks about Ella looked like a child. And not only did she look like a child, she looked like an unfashionable, ugly child. Specifically, <laughs> not chic. She was far from chic, is the word that normally used. And then she talks about booing her. And like, apparently the whole audience took one look at Ella and just started booing her. And Ella oh, no. verifies this as well. Oh no. So they all start booing her. They think she looks terrible. But then... I've got another quote for you. This is what Nora then says after she starts singing. And she had a way of just putting it right in the pocket. And she quieted down this rowdy bunch of people, I swear. When she finished, you could hear a rat piss on cotton. <laughs> a rat piss on cotton. It was, uh, yeah, not, not a needle falling to the floor or anything. You could hear a rat piss on cotton. Wow. Thank you, Nora Miller, for your eloquence. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna try and sneak that into conversation from now on. Wow, it's so quiet in here. You could hear a rat piss on cotton. 
Oh my gosh, that'd be hilarious. For those of you who don't know, when it say says in the pocket, this is a commonly used phrase to talk about jazz music. So oh. in jazz music, the beat is like one, two, three, four, oh, one, two, three, four. There is a space between those beats, right? If I go really slow, you get one, two, three, four, da, you do, da, da, da. And being in the pocket means you're sitting between those beats. And it's something that we really look for in swing music. You might hear people say like, we want you to be behind the beat. You want you in the pocket. We want you to swing, right? This is what gives music that swinging feeling. Yep. And Ella, through no fucking training whatsoever, <laughs> she was just a homeless girl on the streets. She can swing. She just naturally had this ability to find the pocket and sit in the pocket. Wow. But she won this competition. She won this amateur night at the Apollo. And the prize for the competition, I should say, is to perform for a week at the Apollo. However, what was the first thing that happened when she walked on stage? They booed her. Why did they boo her? Because the way she looked. So they didn't give her the prize. No way. The nope. bastards. No, because of the way she looked. The bastards. So this happened November 34. January 35, Bardu Ali was like, this kid is super talented. She is amazing. She looks like trash, but there is talent there. But she was, and, she was an actual street child at the moment, right? Yes. So what could she do? Nothing. She could yeah. do nothing. Yeah. January 1935, this is like a couple months later, mm -hmm. Bardu Ali sneaks her into Chick Webb's dressing room to make her sing for him. And guess what? Chick Webb was reluctant to sign her because she was, quote, <laughs> gawky and unkempt. <laughs> I don't really want a girl singer and not one that looks like that. Mm -hmm. Like that was kind of her big struggle at the beginning was that she just looked terrible. Yeah. And everyone was just like, I don't want to deal with this shit. Yeah. But the band had an upcoming gig at Yale University and they gave her a trial performance. They were like, just do this one night. If you're still not shit, we'll hire you. <laughs> Eventually, they fucking hired her because talent. Yeah. But like she really had to fight for it. And she really had to like keep singing, keep showing people over and over again. Like, hi, I'm really fucking good. Please, like she's now considered one of the best singers of history. Yeah. And the fact that so many people were like, yeah, but your outfit though, it's just, oh my God, it's so frustrating. I'm so glad that she was finally hired. Should we explain a little, just a little bit who Chick Webb was? Oh yeah, go for it. Do you want to, do you know who Chick Webb is? I, I do, because I saw a documentary on Chick Webb and it was, it, it was phenomenal. He was the band leader of the Chick Webb band that played at Savoy Ballroom, which was the biggest of the, of the swing venues in Harlem at the time. He was only four foot nine. He had this, uh, this, this born with this illness, I think born with or contracted it. Uh, tragic story because he ends up dying at like 40. He fell downstairs when he was a child, oh, crushing that's... several vertebrae and never gained full mobility. And then the injury progressed to tuberculosis Got it. of the spine, which is what I, I knew he had tuberculosis. Yeah, he was phenomenal. And because he was so good, he got challenged twice. So they have the, the battle of the bands. First, I think it was Count Basie came to the Savoy to challenge him and they got kicked out. And then it was the Benny Goodman band. Oh, he would definitely kick Benny Goodman's ass. He kicked his ass. Those were just legendary nights. Gene Krupa was the drummer for uh, Benny Goodman. And he just had to bow down and say, okay, this guy has me beat. There's nothing I can do. So legendary jazz swing musician, tragically caught short because of his illness. Also much shorter than you said. He died at 34. 34. 
so young. Yeah. So, so young. yeah. That's like five years away from where I'm now. It's terrifying. <laughs> yeah. Lord. So Ella has now joined Chick Webb's band. She has now been associated with one of the greatest swing jazz musicians of all time. And that's when she records a tisket, a tasket based off a nursery rhyme. So this happened on May 2nd, 1938. They rehearsed it for about an hour that evening and then recorded it. <laughs> At Decca Records, record label that worked with Chick Webb, Bob Stevens was the recording engineer, and he thought it was a terrible song. He was like, nah, let's not do this song. I don't like it that much. It's fine. And Chick Webb had to convince the record executives, like, come on, it's a fucking bop. Let me play it. And wow. it became a major hit on the radio, and wow. it was one of the best-selling records of the decade. So, again, once again, somebody was just like, nah, and Ella and her crew were like, y'all, come on. This takes me right back to our Hallelujah episode, where right? Lena Cohen records this amazing album in 1984. The whole thing is done, and the record uh, executive looks at it and goes, nah, this is not very good. We're not going to release it. And on there is Hallelujah, which becomes one of the most popular songs of all time. So, yeah. yeah. What, do they, what do those guys know? Not a whole hell of a lot. So, I want to share a version of a Tisket Tasket with you. Ooh. I'm not going to share the version that you probably know because she also, on her first ever movie role, which is a film from 1942 called Ride'em Cowboy, was asked to sing the song. And this is like an Abba and Costello film. And the reason I want to share this version is because halfway through, she's got this really cute little giggle. And it makes me laugh every time. I lost my yellow basket. Won't someone help me find my basket and make me happy again, again? Was it red? No, 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 no. Was it green? No, 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 no. Was it cerise? No, <laughs> no, no. Just a little yellow basket. That is that is phenomenal. And she's adorable, right? She looks like she's having a really good time. I love that song. She's 25 in this, yeah. in this recording. Yeah. You can hear her voice is, like, cute. She yes. still has, like, her little girl tone to her voice. Yeah. Which is so adorable. Which fits perfectly with the nursery rhyme nature of this song. Mm-hmm. So that is sort of like Ella's youth, her formative years. Like, Chick Webb was really much like a father to her. He really pushed her and really helped her develop her style. From this moment when she signed with them, she basically started touring and didn't stop touring until her health got too bad. So about 50 years of touring is starting now. Wow. So when she first started, she was really interested in doing ballads and really deep emotional songs. And Chick wouldn't let her do it because she wasn't ready. She was Her voice wasn't mature enough yet. He really coached her. He was a huge influence, musical influence on her life. So... In 1939, he passes away from spinal tuberculosis. And he was touring right up until the end, despite his declining health, to make sure his band still had work during the Depression. It was really important for him that his musicians still had a living, still had a way of earning money. Like we said, he died at 34, which is insanely young. And after his passing, Miss Ella took over leading the band. She became a band leader. The, the band was then known as Ella and her famous orchestra. Awesome. And so the song I've just sent you is a version of the Back Bay Shuffle, which was originally written by Teddy McRae for Artie Shaw. And it's from their album Live at the Savoy from 1939 to 1940. Have a listen to what happened to the band after Chick Webb passed and Ella took over. 
It's also a bop. I love this song. I mean, I love most Ella songs, but I really love this song. That's amazing. That big band swing sound. I just love that so mm -hmm. much. Such a bop. It's such yeah. a bop. It's a great, great song. When I saw the Chick Webb documentary, afterwards we had a Skype call with the director of the documentary. That's so cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we got to ask him some questions. I got to ask him the question, so was there ever anything romantic between Ella and uh, Chick Webb? Uh, given that he was a known uh, womanizer. And as far as anybody knows, there was not. Uh, not yeah, from what I've read, it was more like a father, like mentor-mentee relationship. Exactly. I also asked if there were any stories that were too filthy to be put in the documentary. And he had a couple of those. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's where my mind goes. I'm sorry. From what I understand, Ella had a couple of marriages. Mm -hmm. Her first marriage was right after Chick Webb passed. And it was to somebody who was kind of seen as being like literally a pimp. Like he was selling women and the record label was like, uh, no, 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 no. All of our friends were also like, no, 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 no. But the record label kind of stepped in quite early on and they forced the marriage to be annulled. Right. She then married Ray Brown, had a son with him. And that's who her, her son is, uh, Ray Brown Jr. And that relationship didn't really work out very well because she was touring all the time. She did have a fling with a Norwegian record producer called Thor. I don't remember his last name, but I will never forget that his name was Thor. And they seemed to be very smitten with each other. This is like later on in life. She seemed really, really, really happy with him. And then when he was in the process to get his American visa, it was discovered that he'd been stealing from ex-girlfriends. And so he couldn't get his visa. And so that kind of fizzled out. She was very unlucky in love. From what I know of her, she was really shy. She was really introverted. But she really wanted to have love. She really wanted to have a relationship and she never really quite got it right. But yeah, from everything that I read, like people's accounts of her off stage behind the scenes, she was very quiet and very reserved and very small. And then on stage, she became this like bigger than life personality, which is quite typical, I think, of performers. Like they're quite small off screen. And then on the stage, on the screen, they become this huge persona that they've sure. put on, they've created to survive. Yeah. Wow. So that's a slight detour to her personal life. Around about the 1950s, she meets this person called Norman Granz. I talk about him a lot in my YouTube video. He's fucking awesome. He's so cool. He is a, a white record producer who is fucking on it when it comes to racial issues. He understands his position. He understands his power. And he's using it to help these black artists get places where they never get before, get radio play to get record deals like he's fucking on it he combines his like business savvy with her musical genius and they produce some of the most beloved recordings in the history of american popular music so in 1954 norman Granz becomes her manager and because of norman i'm so grateful for norman because of him <laughs> we have one of my favorite albums of all time 
an album of duets between Ella Fitzgerald and Louis Armstrong. Ooh. And it's so lovely. It's considered the pinnacle of 20th century popular music. At the time, she was about 39 years old and he was about 55. So it's like a little bit later on in their careers. But it just led to some fucking beautiful music. Here is their version of Cheek to Cheek, which is just so sweet. It's so lovely. I have danced to this one many times. Can we take a moment to appreciate this album cover? Yeah. It's so stupid. Like, you know those little roll-down socks and dorky-ass smiles? And then she's just, like, effortlessly glamorous. That is fantastic. Do we know if they liked each other? Did they get along? What was their relationship? I have a quote for you from Miss Ella Fitzgerald about recording with Louis. It never seemed like we were really recording because he came in like there was nothing to it, just gonna have a ball. And I would always mess up because I'd be so fascinated watching him. And he'd be talking and cracking and making jokes. And you don't know if you should sing or laugh. <laughs> oh my God. I don't assume there's any film surviving from that recording session. I, not that I see, oh, but if there man. is, I wanna see it. Man. So yeah, they got on brilliantly. Apparently the recording sessions were so fun and such a great time between the two of them. That is phenomenal. That's so good to hear. I love that. I, okay, I'm, I'm going to find that album and listen to the whole thing now. It's honestly an amazing album, the whole thing. I love albums where two greats come together. Mm-hmm. So my two favorite albums of all time from this era is Ella and Louie. And there's also an amazing album where Duke and Ellington come together. Sorry, yeah. Duke and Ellington? What? No. <laughs> Duke, Where and Duke Ellington. Ellington and Count Basie come together. <laughs> yeah. And that's with the full orchestras. So there's like 60 musicians in a room. It's a <laughs> huge sound. Wow. Those two albums where you have these legends coming together and like bringing the best of what they've got. It's delicious. So Fantastic. tasty. So, so, so yummy. So the guy who made that happen, what was his name again? Norman Granz. We're going to talk about him more. Don't worry. He comes back. He's awesome. I am going to pop a picture in here. Can you tell me, who are these women? Who are these people? That would be of Ella Fitzgerald and Marilyn Monroe. Do you know about their friendship? No, I do not. So in the 1950s, 1955 approximately, Miss Marilyn decides that she wants to be more than just the blonde bombshell. She wants to be a serious actress. She wants to be specifically a triple threat. Uh-huh. Do you know what a triple threat is? No. It is an actress who can act, mm-hmm. who can dance, and who can sing. Ah, that is the triple threat. This is her goal. And so she starts taking dance classes. She goes to a vocal coach and her vocal coach hands her an Ella record and was like, this is what I think you should be aspiring towards. This is what I think you should sound like. So she puts on the record lying on the floor of her bedroom and listens to it a hundred times in a row and is thoroughly obsessed. (laughs) She's like, this is what I want to sound like. This woman is teaching me how to sing just by listening to her. There is a, a very fancy nightclub in Hollywood called the Macombo. And Ella Fitzgerald was interested in playing there, but didn't really work out. And Marilyn's like, oh, hell to the no. If this woman can play in Hollywood, it means I can see her perform live. And I'm obsessed with her record, so seeing her live will blow my goddamn mind. So she calls the owners of the Macombo and is like, hi, it's me. I'm Marilyn goddamn Monroe. <laughs> 
I am the most famous thing in the planet and I look beautiful while being this famous. Wouldn't you like to have me in your club every single night wearing cute ass outfits sitting in the front row where you can take as many pictures as you like? Wouldn't that be great for your establishment? Do you know how to make that happen? I'll tell you how to make that happen. Hire Ella Fitzgerald. Hire her. Hire her to play your club every goddamn night and I will be there. And guess what? They did? They did. And Miss Marilyn Monroe was true to her word and was there every single night in a cute outfits, letting them take as many pictures as they wanted and was seen as a regular of this very fancy club. And one evening actually went backstage to meet Ella Fitzgerald, a basically fangirl from the sounds of things. Like the fact that there was no documentation of this meeting is truly tragic. Yeah. Yeah. Because at this point, they have such similar stories in which they both are orphans. They both have had two failed marriages. They both cannot be taken seriously because of the way they look. Mm -hmm. They both struggle in the show business industry with their body image and how they're presented to the world. And so they get on like nobody's business and actually form a lifelong friendship. Wow. That's amazing. And actually, I think Ella spoke at Marilyn's funeral saying how how much of a debt she owed to Miss Marilyn Monroe. Wow. I love it. Also, women supporting other women. We love to see it. Yes, we do. Okay. I have one more song for you. I'm going to play you that version of Mac the Knife. So uh, That version? That version. It's from 1960. It's from Ella in Berlin. I'll tell you a little bit about it first. This version is infamous because Ella fully forgets the lyrics about halfway through. <laughs> Hence, that version. Yes. So Ella actually did not like this song very much. She just kind of forgets the words and improvises, and it's hilarious, and it's amazing. (laughs) And it was part of something called Jazz of the Philharmonic. So this is where we're going to come back to our our old friend, Norman Granz. So he was kind of like the pioneer of recording live albums. He was convinced live recordings were the way forward. We shouldn't be recording in studios. We need to record what's happening on the stage. And like a lot of people at the time were like, this is not how we make money, mate. No one's going to buy these albums. The quality is not going to be very good, blah, blah, blah. But he was like, we're going to make the quality good and everyone's going to love it because he believed in the energy of a live performance. And so he started doing these tours all through the US and then through Europe as well. He called them Jazz of the Philharmonic and he recorded everything. And he would make albums and he would sell the albums. Again, he's a businessman. He's like thinking about how to earn money for his people. Also, he always paid really well. That was another thing to note about him. He always paid union scale or higher. So musicians were really eager to work with him. I like this guy. Yeah. And also like black, white, whatever. He was like, everyone gets paid the same. Everyone is looked after. Unions. Brilliant. I like him too. He's a cool dude. You know, you'd earn money from the tour, but then you'd also earn money from selling records of the tour as well. And he would start selling the records while the tour was still going. Um... (laughs) So this version of Mac the Knife, where Ella forgets the lyrics, the second it's recorded, he's like, gold, this shit's gold, this shit's amazing. So he immediately starts making records and starts selling it back home in the US whilst they're still on tour in Europe. Like they have a couple more stops on the tour in Europe. I know they go to Holland. I think they probably go to Copenhagen at some point as well, most likely. Yeah. And so Ella had no idea what happened. When she gets home to the U.S., she finds out it's already a hit song. It's on all the billboard charts. And she's like, the thing that I forgot the words? 
Really, guys? Really? Uh, the 1960s equivalent of uploading something to YouTube live or something. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me, could it be, could it be, could it be, Oh, what's the next chorus to this song now? This is the one now. I don't know. But it That, that's a nice comeback. Good, good save on stage. I like that. Some musicals still, I mean, for yes. coming up with lyrics, I've watched a lot of improv theater. Mm. And the genre that impresses me the most or the style that impresses me the most is musical improv. Yes. Where a group of improvisers will make up a song, uh, lyrics and tunes and everything on stage right there. I think that's amazing. She was also kind of known for, for, what's the word, scatting? or for, Yes, for... she's a fantastic scat singer. Yeah. Yeah, so she does that a lot in her, all of her songs. She also went on a lot of TV shows, late night talk shows, mm -hmm. you know, like Jimmy Fallon and that kind of thing. Yeah. She used to do that back in the 60s. That was what they always asked her. They asked her to scat sing this, that, and the other. Interesting that she sang uh, Mac the Knife in Berlin because it's, of course, mm -hmm. based on the poem by Bertolt Brecht, the famous German uh, poet. Did not know that. I don't Ooh. think she knew that either. <laughs> Ooh. It's originally in German. And it goes, there's no lyrics because it was just a poem. Uh, der Haifisch, der hat Zähne, und die trägt er im Gesicht. Und McHeath, er hat ein Messer, doch das Messer sieht man nicht. Basically the same thing, except in German. Mm -hmm. I'm not even sure what that is about. So then we need to figure out what the German is for what's the next lyrics yeah. to this chorus. <laughs> this is the one that I don't know. Oh, at some point she says something about cats. cats. Literally. She goes, uh, something about cats. <laughs> Seriously, go back and listen to the whole recording because yeah, it's absolutely I, oh, fantastic. I absolutely will. I absolutely will. That's fantastic. So the end of her life was actually quite sad. She had a half-sister who had some kids. And when her half-sister died, she realized that she had some aunties. But her parents have passed. There's not really anybody left. She should really step up. And so she spoke to her publicist. is like, book me every gig you can find because I'm going to look after these kids. She loved kids. She loved children. She loved providing for children. She had a big sense of like, I had a shitty childhood. I'm going to make sure nobody else has that childhood. So while she wasn't like a very active mother because she was touring all the time, her son, her nieces and nephews, her grandkids never wanted for anything, right? She was always making sure that she, they had a home to live in. They had a safe place to be that access to education, to clothes, to food. And she kept performing until she literally could not anymore. Because as far as she was concerned, she had too many mouths to feed. And she had diabetes, and she had a couple of, of chronic conditions, and she still performed. She just refused to stop performing. Norman Granz, her longtime manager, and by this point, friend, kept trying to convince her, like, hey, maybe now's the time we retire. Like, <laughs> you are amazing. You've done so much. But like, do you want to rest? And she was like, nope. I need to keep going. I need to keep performing. I need to keep doing things. So she had a really strong sense of duty to these children and like her granddaughter in particular, this little adorable baby. That was the thing that kept bringing her back home again because she wanted to see her granddaughter grow up. 
Mm-hmm. So she would tour, come home, see the kids, tour, come <laughs> home, see the kids. And that was kind of like the cycle she did right until she passed. Wow. Yeah. She was an amazing woman. She passed in 1966 when she was almost 80, and she was performing almost right until the end. Why do so many of the jazz greats end up like that? It's a staggering number of them who die from various diseases that could have been prevented tour until the very end it's almost like we don't value the arts enough to pay these people very well therefore they have to continue touring until the late in life so they can continue earning money for their families and or the american healthcare system yeah like i think when it comes to these kind of things like we need to look at the structural elements that are forcing these people to keep working so hard like if we valued artists better and we paid them better maybe they wouldn't have to work as hard yeah maybe if we had a healthcare system like internationally maybe we've got a healthcare system who like took women's pain and specifically black women's pain seriously mm-hmm. maybe she would have gone to the doctor earlier because she knew she would have been believed like i'm not trying to say that everything comes down to structural racism but but it does it's either that or, or it's like white supremacy sexism or capitalism those are my theories whatever there's shit in the world I'm like it's one of those three i don't know which one possibly all three at the same time talk about a triple threat I was watching a documentary on Sister Rosetta Tharp. Ooh, yeah, same thing. I was touring. You know, finds a black spot in her foot, doesn't do anything about it, loses the leg, dies, dies a little while later. Chick Webb was only Mm thirty-four. She was only eighty. If they had access to decent healthcare and a healthcare system that would believe that black bodies' pain is real, maybe they would have lasted a little bit more. We had more time with them. But no, but we no. can't do that because no. black people aren't people. <laughs> Sorry, I'll get off my soapbox now. But that yeah. was my little little biography of Miss Ella Fitzgerald through some of wow. her music. Wow. Overall, she was an insanely talented person from the get-go who was not taken seriously because of her appearance and really struggled with her appearance throughout her whole life. Like She was very concerned about not being tiny. Mm-hmm. She was a larger woman and she really struggled with that. But my good God, she was so phenomenal. Yeah, Her talent speaks for itself, and I love everything she's created. I want to play one last song for you. This is my favorite Ella song. I think it's honestly one of the most beautiful songs ever. I never cared much for moonlit skies. I never wink back at fireflies But now that the stars are in your eyes I'm beginning to see the light The rhythm, I mean, the voice is one thing. Her voice was phenomenal. I mean, the things she could do with her voice and the way she could convey emotions, I think, was amazing. But that feeling of swinging, holy crap. That's, of course, what makes a lot of her songs great to dance to. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that she has that, right? Yes. This is one of my favorite songs of all time. It's a little bit later. You can tell her voice is a bit more mature. Mm-hmm. It's from 1957, she said, with unsureness. Yes, 1957. It's just such a beautiful, like, mature, rich voice wow. that sits in the pocket, that has that rhythm, and it's mm, it's delicious. It's yeah. one of my favorite songs to dance to. My favorite songs to listen to. I just, I just love this song so much. Yes, and I can see why. So, what do you think of Miss Ella Fitzgerald? I have now gained an increased appreciation for Ella Fitzgerald. 
I can appreciate her artistry, her voice, and the fact that she created this musical career through sheer talent, right? Mm -hmm. Not by being pretty, not by living up to uh, traditional beauty standards. In spite of that, that is phenomenal. I can respect the hell out of that. And I can respect the way she lived her life. I think it's, it's fantastic when people can create a, a good life for themselves and for others the way she supported her family. I think that's fantastic. Yeah. And I can't help but wondering how many other great talents have we lost because they didn't look the way they were supposed to according to, you know, completely random and pernicious beauty standards. It's just, it just it boggles my mind Yeah, that we almost let somebody like her slip through the cracks because they weren't quote unquote pretty. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Oh, holy shit. As soon as we're done here, I'm going to go listen to some more Ella Fitzgerald. Yeah. If somebody else wanted to know more about Ella, where do you think they should uh, start? As like someone who's kind of like a historical dork, <laughs> I do a lot of research. So I basically put all of my favorite resources for Ella in the links. Mm -hmm. um, this is a long list and I don't expect anyone to go through all of them, but there's some really cool stuff. An interview from PBS with her really good friend, June Norton. There is a link to most of the documentary. There's a documentary made by PBS on American Masters. Mm -hmm. It's classic vintage YouTube where it's like part one, part two, part three, <laughs> part five is missing. <laughs> where part five is, I don't know, but the other 10 parts are there. So you can watch the rest of it. Mm -hmm. I found the contract that Ella Fitzgerald signed to make Norman Grant her manager and uh -huh. the National Museum of American History. And there is a link to that if you want to go see her signature and see what that's like. There's wow. a lot of really cool links to check out in the description. I'm also, I haven't made it yet, but I'll make it now. I'll make a playlist of my favorite Ella songs. And I'll awesome. put a Spotify playlist together. Awesome. And I will add that to the list so you can hear all of the great Ella. It's going to be long and I make no apologies <laughs> for that whatsoever. Or you say that it's going to be historical. <laughs> that's me that's who i am i and, am his dorkical yes that's so good yes oh she um, is oh holy shit she's fantastic and i had no she idea is so how worth dorking over like yeah. she's so worth being an absolute freaking dork about wow that is the fabulous miss ella fitzgerald tell me lovely viewers do you now have a deeper appreciation for Miss Ella Fitzgerald? Have I done my job right? Do you have any questions or did I leave out something amazing about her? If I did, please let me know. I want more information about her always. Go to our website or Instagram at Electric Enthusiasm and let me know. I love hearing from you. It's always so nice. In fact, I'm going to issue a challenge right now. I challenge all of our listeners to come up with one Ella fact that Katie doesn't know. I love Miss Fitzgerald. And I would love to hear more. I would just love for somebody to show you up. I, I'm down. I mean, this you basically challenge people to teach me something. I'm like, I love learning. This is amazing. I thought so. I thought <laughs> so. I didn't, I didn't think you'd mind. Not even a little bit, sir. Excellent. What is our moment of meta this week? In this moment of meta, I want to uh, take us our starting point, the West Wing. Have you ever seen the West Wing? I love the West. You love the West Wing. I okay. love the West Wing. I used to love the West Wing. Okay, I haven't watched it in a while. Why do you used to? Why used to? We are currently re-watching it. Okay. It's our third time through the series. This is quite a time investment. It is. Because uh, it's, it's seven seasons. 
of 24 episodes or 40 something minutes each. So it takes a while. And the first time I watched it, I was blown away. In many ways, it's so good, right? It's written by Aaron Sorkin. I'm a huge fan of his work. The dialogue is fantastic. The series is dramatic and funny. And The I, Jackal. The, the Jackal. C.J. Craig, the White House press uh, secretary, doing a rap to The Jackal is phenomenal. Also, her, I think, favorite musical moment is when she does I'm Too Sexy. And we will, of course, put those clips in, in the links. I think it's great. It's great when it's dramatic. I think the, the show is even better when it's funny. Mm. But on the latest rewatch, I've noticed something that makes me less enthusiastic about it. I'm not, I'm not trying to yuck anybody else's yum. It's, I'm so scared you're going to ruin The West Wing for me because I haven't watched it since I was a teenager. I'm just saying, I'm using this as a springboard to talk about how sometimes you get less enthusiastic about something. Mm. So what I've noticed is that the show never respects the leftists. Uh. So for those who don't know, we have a president, President Bartlett. He's a Democratic president. And we follow him and his top-level advisors through various political crises. And he's a very middle-of-the-road politician. Yeah. And the show, it's, it's very what's called enlightened centrism. He's always making compromises. He's always selling out his principles in order to just get some kind of win. Which, by the way, in my opinion, really explains a lot of the Obama presidency. Because uh, apparently a lot of Obama staffers went into politics because they had seen the West Wing and really, really loved it and may, may have informed sort of their perception of how politics should be done. So what I've noticed is that there, there's that going on and it, it annoys the hell out of me. Instead of staking off their principles, they continually sell out their principles for cheap political gains. Yeah. Furthermore, lefties in this world are always portrayed as shrill, hysterical, unreasonable, somebody who will just have to accept that this is not the way the world is. Whereas the Republicans are more portrayed as like devious and smart and the lefties are naive and silly and stupid. It's like yeah. when you go back and watch Friends and you're like, huh, this is kind of shit. This is not very good. Yeah. I tried rewatching some Friends episode. They're just, they're not funny and they're, no. holy shit, they're deeply problematic. I realized recently, I don't know if it's necessarily from Friends, but Friends for sure popularized the concept of the friend zone, mm -hmm. which is the the concept. If I put enough friendship tokens into this, into this <laughs> relationship, you'll sleep with me? Yes, I get sex? No, I don't get sex? No, you are a bad person. I demonize you for not having sex with me. And it's this like really disgustingly toxic concept that men have, and not men, the society has internalized about heteroromantic relationships. And it's so deeply problematic. And I'm so mad at Friends for making that a thing. Yes, I agree. And, and Friends is a good example because I, I, I used to enjoy Friends. Yeah, I think when it came out, it was great TV. And, and now it's, I just cringe when I watch it. Yeah. There's nothing funny about it. The West Wing is not quite there yet. I can still enjoy a West Wing episode, but I've lost a lot of my enthusiasm for it after this third rewatch. I, I, don't, I don't think I'll be recommending it to a lot of other people. And here's my point. That's okay. It is okay <laughs> to be enthusiastic about something and then not be enthusiastic about that thing later on. You enjoyed your time with it, and now you are probably going to enjoy something else even more. And that's yeah. perfectly okay. It would be so weird if, if you didn't change and your tastes didn't change throughout your lifetime enough for you to, you know, leave something behind you and say, you know what, that was great. Uh, not so great anymore for whatever reason. Alex, are, are you saying that people can change and develop and grow? Oh, no, 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 no. 
People are stoic objects that do not move <laughs> and only I, stay in my perceptions of them because otherwise, how would I deal with the world? Exactly. Exactly. I know it's a terrifying concept, but maybe, just maybe, we should be allowed to change our minds about stuff. Yeah. It's scary to change your mind, though. Sometimes it's quite hard to admit that past you was kind of an idiot or wrong. Exactly. I, I just want to make this clear. I'm not saying that you have to go back through all of your enthusiasms and you know examine them with a magnifying glass to see do I still enjoy this. If you enjoyed, you enjoyed, and that's perfectly fine. Enthusiasms can be temporary. They can be passing, and that's perfectly okay. Hang on, hang on. I have a meme for this. <laughs> I'm going to paraphrase it, but it's this idea that we value permanence mm-hmm. in our culture. Like, if your relationship ends, you failed. Yeah. We often demonize this idea of something ending as it being a failure instead of celebrating the time we had with that thing, mm-hmm. right? If you had a bookshop and you ran it for a couple of years, but then you had to close it down, you still ran a fucking bookshop for a couple of years. That's a hell of an impressive task. Just because it ended doesn't mean it's bad. Just because your relationship to an object or your relationship to enthusiasm changes, ends, doesn't make the time you had with that thing any less bad. Temporary isn't evil. Ending isn't evil. It's okay for things to end. It's a lot of times quite good. So yeah. Um, impermanence is great. Temporary is fabulous yes. in every aspect of life. Change is good. I like exactly. this. And, I, and I endorse it as an enthusiasm. There we go. That was my whole point. <laughs> Enthusiasms don't need to last forever. But my love for Ella Fitzgerald will last forever. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> ah, that's phenomenal. Awesome. Katie, if somebody loved this episode of ours, what other episode of ours do you think they'd also enjoy? Assumably, they like jazz. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So I'm feeling, I'm feeling Mr. Billy Strayhorn. Yes. Learned about the person who arranged and composed most of Duke Ellington's songs, despite getting no credit. Yeah, musical genius who was black and gay, and mm-hmm. that was not easy at the time, no. and yet went on to create phenomenal music. Anyone else? Anything else? Yes. This is the weirdest thing. So our latest episode, Lisa Nagel, mm-hmm. the Danish journalist and writer, so Ella Fischel was born in April 1917. Yes. Lisa Nagel was born in Denmark in June 1917. They were contemporaries. Yes, they were. And we happen to know that Lisa Nagel loved jazz music. I'll have to figure out if they ever met. That will blow my tiny little mind if they it's did. It's entirely possible she saw Ella's concerts because Ella did so many tours in Europe. Yeah. And Copenhagen was a jazz capital of the world at the time. I know for a fact that she came here. Louis Armstrong came here like 10 times. Yeah. And these two women were in very different fields. So Ella Fitzgerald, singer, uh, Lisa Nagel, writer, journalist, author. But both of them living their lives outside of mainstream society's norms. Both of them achieved fame in their field and used it to make the world a little bit better. Mm-hmm. So I think that those are two very interesting parallel stories, even yeah, though okay. their lives on the surface would have been very, very different. Do we have any roundup? I actually think I do. Because we got a comment on the blog. We got a couple of comments from Leon. It's probably Leon Ulgin, who wrote, I just came across your podcast on YouTube, and he's listening to the Harpo Marx episode. After all, he is supposed to be working, even though he's his own boss. But he's listening to it anyway, because Harpo Marx is his favorite Marx brother. I could not agree more. 
And then he shares that he's very enthusiastic about teaching music, particularly music history and that kind of thing. So I think that's fantastic. He's a little sad that he doesn't know anything about accountant, but he does have a good accounting uh, account. But we issued a challenge. We want to find somebody to have on as a guest who is passionate about accounting just mm-hmm. to prove our point that anything, and I do mean anything, can be interesting if it's presented with enough enthusiasm. When I meet somebody like a stranger who I know I'm not going to see again, for example, a taxi driver who's asking you way too many questions after a long travel day, I do tell them I'm an accountant. <laughs> like... It just stops the conversation dead in a way that's very useful. Yeah. When I was in Cyprus recently, it was like 1 a.m. We were exhausted. And this tax driver was playing 20 <laughs> questions with us. It's like, where are you girls from? Do you have boyfriends? Are you two together? Da, da, da. And he just had so many questions. And then he said, what do you guys do for a living? And my friend Ellie told the truth. And I turned around and said, I'm an accountant. <laughs> oh. And that was it. Conversation ended. I killed it. I murdered it dead. Um, That's hilarious. So Okay, I think yeah. now it's even more important that we find an accountant to tell yes. us all about accounting because I'm sure it's fascinating. It doesn't kill that conversation. I need some more lies to like yeah, back yeah, it up. Yeah, that tr- that too. That too. So <laughs> <laughs> That's coming up next on this challenge. Accounting. Yes. Yes. We hope you enjoyed sharing some of our enthusiasms in this episode. Please visit our website, electricenthusiasm.com, or find us on Instagram at electricenthusiasm to discover more episodes or to leave a comment. And now, dear listener, go make up your own lyrics to life. Aww, so cute. Because I don't know how this verse goes. We got to make it up. Also, who cares? Make it, make up your own.